Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, and this episode is entitled Ethical Robot Love Hack. Just to pull you in off the interwebs there. This is Christian Chiller with my weekly roundup of things from the internet that interested me, sometimes plus an interview, no interview today. I have got back finally from my month-long excursions and I'm just catching up. So interviews coming soon, but quite a few articles to talk about. So let's get started. Beginning with an article from Gideon Lewis Krauss on the New York Times about the rise of the WeWorking class. This is actually something that I've spoken about a few times, this this aspect of co-working spaces and sort of putting themselves across as the alternative but becoming so large and so mainstream with WeWork. Apparently, I'm, I can't remember where I heard this statistic, so take it with a huge grain of salt, that WeWork now owns like 30% was the number I heard, which seems crazy high, but a very large percentage of real estate in London especially, but also in a lot of other cities um, and for example today we work is opening maybe a sixth or seventh building in Berlin and um, Berlin is third of the size of um, of London so yeah they are growing massively and we really start to question whether they are actually the alternative or not and then I guess there's that sort of weird dynamic of the space especially we work but also other co-working spaces this this almost pressuring you to 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 fit in and sometimes you don't want to sometimes you feel like you have to uh it's sort of forced to manufacture community actually interesting this is something i asked a lot of people i knew who worked in co-working spaces a few months back maybe it's something i should do more formally every co-working space claims this feeling of community but do they actually have it and what does that even mean? And in fact, most of the people I spoke to briefly or bit said that no, their co-working space didn't have any sense of community. So yeah, I'd be interested in hearing your experiences of co-working spaces. Are they really the future? Are they just a compromise? Are they the best we can do in um, sort of current nature of work? Yeah, what's your feeling on co-working spaces? I'd love to hear from you. And next, uh, an article on The Guardian from Carolyn Criado Perez, The Deadly Truth About a World Built for Men. Uh, and obviously there's there's lots of things that we know are male-dominated and male-focused in the world. And this article went deep into quite a few you'd never even thought about. Uh, police women not being able to move properly because of stab vests not designed for them. Crash test dummies. Well, people um, involved in crashes in a far worse way because up until relatively recently, car manufacturers only tested with male-shaped crash test dummies. And there's a wonderful picture, actually, of a, um, a, a female model between two crash test dummies, and you can really see kind of the, the difference it makes in size and stature. Uh, and yeah, just uh, just an interesting article that really makes you think about how the world is influenced by the way things are designed and how so many things are designed around male forms and what that means. I don't think the article covered it, but one I remember reading in the past as well is about medication. And that's actually, well, I don't know, Stavrufus and Kretis uh, is also important, but but um, you know, the, the very much more subtle, I guess, unvisible effects of um medication on different anatomies and how male and female anatomies are different so yeah uh yes another 
example you hadn't maybe occurred to you. There was also uh, an example in here about the uh, toilets at the Barbican in London, which I did go to recently. I don't remember seeing this, actually. I don't remember them having turned the toilets to gender neutral, but this sort of lip service of turning toilets to gender neutral without actually changing the toilets, just changing the signs, which doesn't really make any difference. And I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast, but I can't remember when. I know I've talked about it with friends, this aspect of... um, you know the very makeup of of toilets and the way they work, and the and that even when you just turn old toilets into multi-purpose, the gender still tends to split off, or those identifying as genders tend to split off because people aren't necessarily comfortable uh, weeing in public with each other. Um, it's interesting actually because a lot of toilets in Europe. Well, often in bars and restaurants especially, even though they're very small, they tend to be kind of partially shared. Although, I, I don't know, people bring this up as an example, but often they're very small as well. So there's not that, I don't know if there's that much of an advantage to them, but um, maybe people are more used to to go to a toilet together. I, I don't know. It's, they're, they're, they're quite different setups. But um, just these further and further aspects of, of too many male designers not involving female designers to answer some sometimes very obvious questions and, and solve some, I guess, big problems, but fairly simple problems if you just involved other people in the process. Next, an article in Technology Review by Mike Orcutt that grabbed my attention because I still am doing a lot of work in the blockchain space. Um, an article about blockchains being hacked and I don't know if hacked is necessarily the right word. It's more about gaining control, the the consensus algorithms that are often designed to protect users in blockchains, being overwhelmed and broken. I suppose hacked is, is a good enough word, but not strictly hacking per se. Um, and how this has happened to more than you would expect when uh, one of the big selling points of blockchain is it's unhackable. And of course, that's always... If you use a phrase like that, people will want to find a way to counter that and disprove you. Um, and there's been quite a few, some of which uh, are more controversial blockchains. And if you are more in this space and you've read white papers and critiqued white papers, some of the victims have been ones that were already critiqued. Some are ones that weren't, and it's still possible to do so. I mean, I guess it's not surprising. Um, the blockchain naysayers will say, well, this just shows we were all right. The blockchain enthusiasts will say, well, it's still early days. Uh, someone like myself who's in the middle will say, well, it's always an arms race. If you create something that's a target, people always want to find a way of breaking it, which is kind of what's happening here. But... Um, it's an interesting article. If you don't understand what I've been talking about, it's also a good article to help you understand what I've been talking about. So I recommend it for that at the very least. Tying, I guess, uh, two of the last articles I mentioned together a little bit is the next a post on the OpenAI blog. Uh, no author cited, but um, AI safety needs social scientists. In the recent weeks as well, OpenAI also announced they'd created this text generation algorithm that was too dangerous to be released, which whilst I appreciate their gesture, it was a little bit sensationalist for my tastes, especially when we have no real proof that they actually have made anything. But um, I have mentioned this to several of my friends. I have quite a few friends here in Berlin who are philosophers and sometimes don't really know what to do with their 
their, their careers, there is no real need for philosophers in the modern world. And many times I've actually said that tech startups especially could do with philosophers and or social scientists to help. Um, I, I fill this role that I've, I've sort of created a word for the uh, chief pessimist officer, shall we say, the person who can analyse human behaviour, look at the idealistic um, engineering product and say, have you thought about how this could be used in X or Y or could be abused by these people? Or, you know, you haven't thought about women or people of colour in this situation and the application of the technology there and et cetera, et cetera. And just basically involving less technologists all the time to create really holistic and cohesive products. And, of course, I'm a little biased because I sort of do this partially for a job. I'm sort of someone who sits there and um, critiques engineers' work to really try to polish it and make it shine. But um, I, I think there's, there's, there's space for even more roles to do this. Uh, and I think we're now seeing more and more that these kinds of roles have really been missing in recent projects. So interesting article. Have a good read and uh, make your own mind up. I'd, I'd love to hear from any philosophers or social scientists out there about whether they think their skills would be applicable, whether they think they are qualified, um, whether they've ever tried to pitch their ideas to tech companies and the reactions they've got. Love to hear from you. Next, uh, getting down into the geeky stack a little bit, an article on opensource.com from Antoine Thomas. Um, it's actually, <laughs> the article title is not necessarily what I want to talk about. The title is Tips and Tricks on Printing with Cups. The, uh, what does it stand for? The Common Unix Printing System. Not that I really want to talk about that, but more about uh, the interesting interweaving tales which once prompted me to start working on a board game that is on a little bit of a hiatus around the technology industry, about the technology industry, because of these interweaving tales always fascinated me. And more that um, Cups would probably be dead if it were not for one small company's involvement, which was Apple, when they were creating Mac OS X back in the day. And I remember those days. They needed printing libraries and they couldn't really be bothered trying to encourage everyone to rewrite them. So they basically uh, integrated Cups into Mac OS instead, thus giving it a whole new lease of life. Kind of a little bit like Linux and Android as well, I suppose. Um, and it's sometimes interesting how you know you, you may criticize uh, one company on one side but actually they've sort of partially helped save a technology you love on the other side so sometimes these interweaving tales are interesting to learn and actually i am starting a new podcast soon called the enthusiastic amateur and the first episode is going to be covering computer history so you can look forward to hearing more about that very soon and following up more in open source world this was an article from Stephen J. Vaughan Nicholas on ZDNet. I'm going to go for that pronunciation. About a doomsday Docker hole. This was an interesting article because it talked about a huge vulnerability in Docker and thus many products that are using Docker images. That didn't really get that much coverage. And I wonder why. I wonder if um, it was a bit of a non-story, if it was patched very quickly, if the story was wrong. Um. But uh, if you are using Docker, then I would recommend you took a quick read of this and the Docker security notes to check that Docker, Kubernetes, Mesos, whatever you're using that use Docker images is patched and not exposed this hole anymore. And a lot of the vulnerability was basically around 
having malicious containers running next to your other containers. Um, and a lot of people will download images and run them on various systems without really checking the details. So I guess the take-home salient piece of information is to always check the images and containers you're running before deploying them. Don't just download, run without ever checking their providence and what's going on inside them. And an article now on Wired from Chris Stokel Walker on Article 13, um, a European Union directive around copyright proposals. This is one that I keep following and it's strange how um, some, like GDPR for example, got so much coverage, I, I guess because of the personal effect it had on people. And Article 13 has had less coverage, even though it stands to be way more dangerous, mostly proposed by copyright holders or those interested in copyright in the European Union. For example, companies like Axel Springer, a huge publishing company here in Germany, not really for the good of the people, despite what they will make you think, really for the good of the industry and the old media industry at that. The the article has kind of been bounced back and forth between industry the regulators and activists and those interested in internet freedom. Um, and this article basically says that things just got a lot worse. There were some good things in the article which are now mostly gone. Um, and this article is still yet to be voted in, so it's still not too late. It's still a draft proposal. It's still not too late to convince MEPs and other prominent members in the European Union, if you are a citizen, of course, to do something about it. Um, the European Union is not always industry first, so it's possible maybe for enough people pressure to um, to make a change. I wonder why it has gone through so easily. I wonder if a lot it's one of those issues where a lot of the people just don't quite understand how it affects them, and it will definitely affect programmers because things like code in repositories can count as copyright. Um, and maybe subject to filters and things like that, which will really slow down what we do and potentially really damage what programmers do as well. Um, make it hard maybe to reference things, all these sorts of things. So there's actually a lot of very big knock-on effects that seem small, but if you think about uh, how much you sort of borrow and are inspired by various sources of information in your day-to-day life and how this potentially could affect that process. So um, have a look at this article. Uh, look up some of the activist groups in your area, organisations like the Electronics Frontier Foundation, the Pirate Parties of Europe, etc., etc., will be pleased to hear from you and about how you can help them get this bill changed or removed completely. And finally, a topic we always have liked to cover here on the podcast, robot love, why it's almost inevitable. An article, again, on ZDNet from... Greg Nicholas, and how then even without us trying or thinking, robots are getting involved in our love lives. There are now robot brothels in several cities, and your opinions, whether this is a good or a bad idea, may vary. In some ways, it's a good idea, because um, not involving vulnerable people in the sex industry anymore, in some ways, it's a bad way, because there's a loss of income for people who were making income in that Um even uh, if you include things like apps that we are now so attached to to associate and have relationships with people, it's not quite robot love, but the influence is already f- having a strong impact into our love lives. Uh, sex robots for 
disabled people and for people who have found it hard to maintain relationships for various reasons um, are a positive uh, and actually bring a form of especially physical relationship to people who weren't able to have them, which is something that often gets overlooked with these sorts of uh, assistive devices sometimes. And then the article even draws final comparisons to if you don't understand how you could have a relationship with a physical object, consider the ways we are attached to devices like blankets as a child or um, or certain items that we just can't do without for some inexplainable reason. And that might make you start to understand how a device that is literally talking to you, providing you physical pleasure and comfort, well, it talks to you in a reasonably good way, let's face it, Humans are not always as smart as we think and don't always give as good conversations as we think, whereas a robot probably could. Well, you start to understand how this could be inevitable for so many people. Are you okay with it? What do you think of it? Would you do it? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And that was the Weekly Squeak for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, you can find show notes and previous episodes at chrischinchilla.com slash podcasts. You can support me and what I do, my various things, at christianchiller.com slash support. Lots more tech journalism coming your way from me very soon. I am emerging from my period of break because I just got overwhelmed with other work and there should be much more coming in March, actually, and including some new podcasts from me too. You can tweet at me at Chris Chinch and also find all my contact details on the websites I just mentioned. So until the next time, if you have been, thank you for listening.